Genesis 15, 1 through 6 this morning. And before we do, let's go to God in prayer and ask his blessing on the on preaching of his word. Father, we do thank you again that you have given us the great privilege of hearing your word and sitting under the proclamation of your word. And we pray, our God, that you would not only make us to know the word of truth, but to know the power of the gospel. And we pray that you would grant us um, wisdom and understanding that you would open the hearts and minds of those present here. We pray that you would till up good soil in our hearts that we might receive the word and keep it and bear fruit with patience, even 30, 60, 100 fold. We pray, our God, that you would do and continue to do the work of redemption that you have begun in us this morning. We pray that you would both save and sanctify. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're looking at Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and just a note of context, Abraham has just come back from the slaughter of the kings. Lot was taken captive. Abraham went out with his 318 men and defeated Shedeleomer and the kings who were with him, brought back Lot, brought back all the possessions, was met by those two kings, Melchizedek and the king of Sodom. He was given, as we saw last week, that that um, decision point of Will you take possessions from the world? Will you find security and reward in this life? Or will you submit to the blessing of God by grace? And Abraham, as we saw, received the blessing of God by Melchizedek, that great type of Jesus Christ, who was the priest king. And now these, this is what we read, Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, And I think better than the ESV here, it should say, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to, them, said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think that it is not only a safe thing to say, but I think it's something that we all know is true that Everything that we do, all of the ambitions that we have in life, uh, whatever we set our hand to do, whatever decision we make, is in some way a quest for safety and or satisfaction. Everything that we set our hands to falls under one of those two things. How do I know that I'll be safe? How do I know that I'll be satisfied? I mean, the entire insurance business is built on telling you, you will be safe, you will be satisfied. You will be provided for, you will be protected, your loved ones will be protected, they will be provided for, their loved ones will be protected, they will be provided for. No matter what we do in life, everything that we are doing falls under that rubric. We are seeking after safety and we are seeking after satisfaction. And when we move into the Christian life, it's no different than in uh, the life of the unbelieving world around us. We, our desires don't change. They are redirected. Our desires are for spiritual safety and for spiritual satisfaction. Our desires continue to be 
what they were before we were in Christ, but now they are directed spiritually and upward toward God. And the question that all of us have whenever we set out on any endeavor is, is this worth it? That's the great question. Is this worth it? I, I, I understand that some people are more self-reflective than others. I understand that some people understand their own weaknesses and strengths better than others. But at the end of the day, everyone is asking the question, is this worth it? Because while we are grasping for safety and satisfaction, we realize that the world around us is crumbling, that there's no real safety and there's no real satisfaction to be found. Um, uh, Shakespeare in Macbeth has this great statement, and, and if you are one of those optimistic, uh, hopeless optimists or naive optimists, you really need this. Um, and if you are one of those um, hopeless pessimists, you already know this. Uh, Shakespeare and Macbeth says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face, that it resounds as if it felt with Scotland and yelled out like syllable of dolor. I want to read that first part again. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. And you know, as much as people don't want that to be true, it is absolutely true. And every new day brings new sorrows and new difficulties, and the safety slips away, and the satisfaction fails you. And every day we are left asking the question, where can I find safety? Where can I find satisfaction? How do I know? How do I know? that I will ultimately be safe and satisfied. And, you know, very interesting, Abraham is asking that question. Abram here has returned from the slaughter of the kings. He is at a high point, if you will, in his life. He has had several trials after following the Lord and going out and leaving his father and his father's house and all his possessions and going out. He hit those those challenges and those trials. He had the famine that led him to go down into Egypt where he gave up Sarah. He stumbled, he fell, God restored him, he came out. He then had the potential strife with Lot and the herdsmen as the possessions grew and they amassed more wealth and he realized that more wealth brought more sorrow and, and he trusted the Lord and he overcame that trial and he said to Lot, you go left, I'll go right, you go right, I'll go left. He walked by faith, not by sight. He, he lived in a tent, the writer of Hebrews says, as a stranger and as a foreigner in the promised land. He didn't go out and try to secure as much of the land of Canaan with his own wealth, though he was exceedingly wealthy. He didn't try to lay up vacation homes by the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee, or up on Mount Hebron. He could have. All the Canaanites were doing that. Abram committed himself to the Lord, and he passed that trial by faith. And then there was another test. And at this point, you start to think, well, is it worth following the God of promise? Is it worth following the God of promise? If the Christian life is so full of sorrow, and, and the sorrow around us is what we're trying to avoid, is it really worth it? Abram then went forward and he delivered Lot after he'd been taken captive, another trial, and a victory. And what's remarkable about what we see in Genesis 14 and then the transition to 15 is that we are seeing that Abram, in a sense, has attained a spiritual high. He has come to a place of spiritual victory. And it's at that moment where Abram is at the the brink of having experienced the greatest spiritual victory he has ever experienced, seeing God's great power and great deliverance in in enabling him to conquer Shedeleomer and the kings who were with him, that Abram is most fearful and full of doubt and trepidation. It's very interesting, isn't it? You almost think Genesis 15.1 doesn't go with Genesis 14, because Abram has just 
met that great type of Jesus Christ Melchizedek. He just met the greatest type of Jesus in the scriptures, the great king priest who came and blessed him. And the next thing we read is God saying, don't be afraid, Abram. And it doesn't fit, except that Abram internally, and God knows, and this is very helpful to us, God knows all the anxieties and all the fears. He knows everything going on in our minds. He knows when our minds are racing to figure out how we're going to secure the next uh, security investment. He knows how we're trying to figure out how we're going to navigate our way through the next challenge or difficulty in life. God knows exactly what's going on. Notice he comes in verse 15, and he says to Abram, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Now, I think that we're going to see two things in these six verses. First, we're going to see uh, that the believer has a need for God's protection. And then secondly, that the believer has a need for God's provision. Believers have a continual need for God's protection and God's provision. And everything that God is going to say to Abraham is going to speak directly to those needs as Abraham grapples through his own fears and his own anxieties and his own doubts and his own assessing things naturally rather than supernaturally. Abraham, and and the helpful thing in this passage is that Abraham is assessing everything on a natural level, trying to use his own human reason to figure out what's going on in his life now that he's followed the Lord and the trials and difficulties have come. Now, Abraham, no doubt, when we consider his need for protection, Abram, no doubt, is fearful that some of the kings that he's just defeated would rise up against him. That is the most straightforward way of understanding why Abram's afraid. Abram is smart enough to know he shouldn't have won the battle with 318 men. He's smart enough to know that at the end of the day, the battle is the Lord's, but that maybe, you know, Abram's starting to fear and he's starting to think, well, what if the Lord doesn't continually protect me? What if, what, I've, you know, I followed the Lord, I've fallen into these trials before, maybe he's going to let me fall into some more severe trials, more challenging difficulties. By the way, I want to say this this morning, this is real Christianity. This is not cheap veneer Christianity that just tries to get you worked up emotionally and paints this big smiley face on everything. This is real. This is, this is biblical Christianity, that as we face the trials and we are grappling internally saying, why am I going through this? How am I going to be protected in the midst of this? And, and Abraham is stumbling, and the Lord knows it. And he comes and he says to him, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, just a note, and and I found this to be very helpful. Um, Eric Alexander, thinking about how Abram goes from this period of great spiritual victory to this, this valley of depression and anxiety. I mean, he shifts gears imperceptibly into this valley of depression. Eric Alexander says this. He says, you are never in more need of protection by God than in the aftermath of some spiritual triumph or blessing. I think that is absolutely profound because we tend to think I am most in need of God's protection when things are really hard and difficult and the the paychecks are not coming in as I want them to. And, and I don't know how we're going to do this. And the kids are rebelling. And I'm not sure about this. And, and when in reality, the most dangerous place to be is right after those spiritual triumphs and victories. That's when we need to be protected by God the most. Because we can easily slide into self-performance mode. We can easily think, yes, that's great, I did it. Or we can start to think, what if I don't do it again? 
You see, what Abraham's done is he has subtly allowed himself, and this is, by the way, you and I do this all the time. He has subtly allowed himself to remove the living and true God of promise out of the equation of him walking through the wilderness of this world. He has subtly allowed God and everything that God has already taught him and all the promises of God to kind of, to kind of take back seat and fear and anxiety go into the driver's seat. And yet, God very graciously comes to him and he strengthens him and he says to him, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Now, a couple of things when we consider the first part of verse one, because you have, you have um, protection and provision, you have safety and satisfaction. God would be shield, God would be reward. Those are the two things that, again, we're all looking for, Abram was looking for. And when God comes and he says, I will be your shield, what God is not saying is nothing hard will ever come upon you. And, and I want to be as emphatic as I can this morning. Um, people that say, if you just have enough faith, um, are really no better than Job's friends who said, you know, you're suffering because of, you know, something you did wrong. Very interesting, Mark Dever, I'd never thought about this, pointed out about Job's friends and Job that Job was suffering because he was righteous, because he was trusting the Lord. Job's friends weren't suffering because they were self-righteous. Because they were wicked, they weren't suffering. And yet the righteous was suffering. So God is not saying no difficulties, no trials, no challenges. What he's saying is, I am going to keep you, Abraham. I am going to preserve your faith. I am going to fulfill my promises. If Abraham dies at this point, there's no redeemer. The promises of God fail. The purpose of God fails. There's no redemption because Abraham himself carries that seed promise that God said that he would send a redeemer who would be the seed of Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed. So if Abraham falters, if God lets him go. Now, what Jesus does, and and very interesting, when we read the New Testament, you have that sort of that um, repeated idea in different cameos in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation and elsewhere of, of the disciples becoming fearful when they've experienced some of God's blessing, when they've drawn near to God, and yet when they look around and they see the trials and the challenges and they become fearful, and, and Jesus, who is God, comes and he constantly says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. He basically updates everything that you're experiencing here when he comes in the flesh. Now, what he's saying is, don't be afraid that no one will snatch you out of my hand. Don't be afraid of the attacks of the evil one. I will keep you. I mean, Jesus says to Simon Peter, he says, Satan has asked for you to sift you, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. That is what it means that the Lord is the shield of his people. I have prayed for you. Would Peter and the disciples be sifted? Yes. Would they stumble? Yes. Would they sin? Yes. Would Peter deny Jesus at the moment of suffering? Yes. Would Peter ultimately deny Jesus? No. Because God would be his shield. God is saying to Abram, I will be your protector. I will protect you. I will keep you. In a very real sense, what God is saying to Abram is what you need more than anything is perseverance. You know, I look at the Christian church and if you read, if you read um, articles or posts, um, today, there's a lot to talk about culture and what's happening with the church in America, what's happening with the church in the world. Um, and and as, as the culture rapidly becomes more and more anti-Christian, 
um, the church is going to become smaller and smaller. I, th- I think that's generally true. Um, I think it, it would happen in times of prosperity. I think it happened uh, under Chuck Colson's God and Country uh, veneer of evangelical America. I think affluence and persecution both tend toward those things. They tend to, they tend to tell people, um, don't persevere, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Remember, that's what we're asking, the question, is it worth it? And God is saying, yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. I will be your shield. It's worth it. Continue worshiping me. Continue pressing through the challenges. Continue humbling yourself under my mighty hand. Continue being strengthened by my word of promise. You know, that's what God is ultimately doing in this section, is he is constantly strengthening Abram with his word. Now, I love that. I've often found and taken great comfort in that, that we have so many times where we act exactly like Abram and, and we start to assess everything by our natural reading of our circumstances and God comes with his word. And what the word does is when God comes with his word, when we bring ourselves to the word, we are essentially turning the telescope the other way around and we are learning to read things through the lens of God's eternal power and his supernatural working. That's what Abram has left out of the equation. He has moved into the realm of the natural. He has forsaken the fact that God is the infinite God who can do all things, who calls those things that are not as though they were, who works in time and space to bring his people to himself, to protect them, and then to provide for them. And notice that Abram's response in verse 2 is very telling. Abram doesn't say, thank you, Lord. I know that you are my shield and my reward. It's very interesting. You might expect um, if Abram was just this, had a triumphalistic view of the Christian life as some people have that, you know, just, that's right. The Lord said, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your reward. And, and Abram says, the Lord, what are you going to give me? Notice he's still in natural mode. Lord, what are you going to give me? How will I know? What will you give me tangibly? Here's why. Abram has been following the Lord for 10 years. He's about 85 to the best of our calculations. He's about 85 years old. He's been following the Lord. He has no offspring and he has no land. So 10 years, he's left everything to follow the Lord. He has been walking by faith through all those trials for 10 years. And, and God hasn't done anything to fulfill his promises. So he, is, he needs perseverance. He is still going. And he's saying, how do I know? I look at my life. It doesn't look it doesn't look like a bed of roses. It doesn't look like God is just showering supernatural blessing after blessing after blessing. I mean, I see his hand of providence. I saw him give me the victory over this. But, but what are you going to give me? Notice he starts to do the calculations. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Abram is not thinking so much about God's protection as he's thinking about God's provision at this point. He's thinking about satisfaction. What is the reward going to be? I just denied the, the, the receiving of the goods from the king of Sodom, which would have made him unbelievably wealthy. He turned that down. He said, no, you know, I don't want your lottery money. He turned it down. He took the blessing of Melchizedek, and he gave a tenth of his money to Melchizedek. So instead of receiving anything, he in fact gave back to the Lord through this shadowy, mysterious, Christ-like high priest. And Abram is matriculating that, and he's thinking, well, I gave up that reward, and, and the Lord pronounced that blessing through Melchizedek, but what, what is my reward? 
What, what are you going to give me, Lord? And, and he starts to calculate and he starts to assess. He knows, by the way, very interesting, Abram is not acting in absolute unbelief here. You might think Abram's acting in absolute unbelief. You might think Abram is just stumbling in the most ungodly way. But what Abram is actually doing, like the man in Mark's gospel that comes to the Lord and says, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. There's a measure of faith. I love this. Um, Eric Alexander again says, it was not unbelief that made Abram inquire of God like this. It was faith. Unbelief would have ignored what God said and wouldn't have been troubled by the fact that nothing was there. Oh, I thought that was profound. Unbelief wouldn't have cared. Would have been like, yep, because the unbeliever can't think spiritually. The unbeliever's not taking the promises of God into account. The unbeliever's just walking according to their fallen human wisdom. How am I going to make another dollar? How am I going to get safety here? How am I going to get satisfaction there? And, and don't care that God is not providing because they don't have God in the equation. Because they don't know the Lord. And they can't think spiritually. Abram is thinking spiritually. He is saying to the Lord, he is praying. And in, in a real sense, and I think this is helpful for us, Abram is taking the struggles of his mind and, and his heart, which are in themselves mixed with unbelief, and, and in that sense are not what they should be, and yet he is taking them to the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, help me. Help me. I understand that you've promised. I've left everything. I've followed you for 10 years, and now I'm afraid I don't have a son. He understands that all the promises are going to be fulfilled in an offspring who's going to be the redeemer. In that sense, Abram is even in his stumbling, looking forward, wanting to see the day of the redeemer. You know, that was always helpful to me when Jesus says in in John chapter 8, because the Jews are arguing with him, have you seen our father Abraham? Are you greater than Abraham? And, And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. So, so Jesus is actually, I think, reflecting on the very essence of what Abram's doing. Abram is wanting to see the day of the Redeemer. He's wanting to see the day in which the promises of God are going to be fulfilled spiritually, but he understands that that means that there has to be a seed. There has to be some kind of evidence that God is working toward fulfilling these promises. He is coming to God doubting, but he is coming to God wanting to be strengthened in faith. Again, Eric Alexander said, Abram found that because he took God's promise seriously and wanted nothing less, he was overwhelmed by a spirit of disappointed hope and God God came and ministered to him at that moment. So Abram had that moment of disappointment and disappointed hope, but he was coming to God with that. You know, in, maybe in a different sense, you have something of this with Thomas, don't you? That Thomas, after Jesus has shown himself to the disciples repeatedly and to others, um, and then says to the disciples, you know, unless I see the nail prints and and Unless I, I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And, and yes, it's unbelief. It's not commendable. Jesus will actually rebuke Thomas. But, but Jesus condescends to Thomas's weakness. And he comes and he shows Thomas his hands and his feet and his side. And he says, look, Thomas, it's me. Does the spirit of flesh and blood put your hands here? Put your hand in my side. And, but then do not be unbelieving, but be believing. More blessed are those 
who have not seen and yet believe. I mean, everything about the life of Abram, everything about the narrative in Genesis is teaching us what the life of faith looks like. And as we press on, and as we are laboring for safety and satisfaction spiritually and wanting to find those things in the Lord Jesus, we are constantly needing to be strengthened, and God is constantly coming and strengthening us. Notice verse 4, Abram figures, well, you know, I don't have a son, so Lord, maybe you're going to fulfill these promises through Eliezer of Damascus. Um, That's clearly a reference to someone who is outside. I mean, Abram is the Hebrew of Hebrews here. Eliezer of Damascus is one of his servants. I think Abram is ultimately saying to God, well, maybe, Lord, will Eliezer do? He's still trying to figure it out on his own. I, I think that's the big thing. When we fail to take the robust teaching of scripture and the robustness of the promises of God and really understand everything that God has spoken to us and 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 who God is and and how he acts and and how he works in our lives when we when we fail to to take his word and the totality of his word into account we end up trying to figure out well how will I get through this with my own ingenuity and that's Abram still doing that and notice the Lord comes to him again I love this the Lord has already come to him once in the vision now he comes to him again in verse 4 behold the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir and he brought him outside said look to the heavens number the stars if you're able to number them then he said so shall your offspring be and he believed the Lord So here's what God has done. In this passage, God speaks twice to Abraham and his doubt and his unbelief. By the way, I want to say this too. Well, this is maybe an aside. When this, this, what God does here works, and we're going to parse what he's doing exactly in just a second, but what he does here works, not just when we're anxious or worried about how am I going to make it, through this trial or challenge or difficulty? Um, How am I going to be provided for? This works. This works when we are complacent in our Christian life. We're just kind of going along with the motions. We're not really pursuing the Lord. We're We're not bearing a lot of fruit. Our lives are just really stagnant. We care more about our families, more about our jobs, more about our kids, more about whatever. The same principle works. God comes and he speaks. And through the scriptures, he speaks his word of promise to us. And his promises are meant to strengthen the believer. His promises are meant to be the anchor for our souls, the writer of Hebrews says, by whom we have strong confidence and that we continue to persevere and press on. And God does two things with Abram that I think are very interesting here. He speaks his word to him twice. He says, I'm going to be your your shield and your reward. I'm going to give you a child, which, by the way, if you're 90, Abram gets. That's impossible. God's teaching him you're going to have to think supernaturally. You're going to have to understand that I will have to fulfill this promise. So that's what God's saying to him. And then the second thing God is doing is he's taking and giving him a tangible sign a reminder in nature of what he's going to do. He takes him out. He says, look, I want you to look up. And if you can imagine a Palestine night with no lights, with complete darkness and what that sky would look like. The only thing I've ever seen close to that is in Alaska. The absolute darkness and then the myriad of stars that burst out when you look up in the sky. 
And God is saying to him, I am going to do this and, and number the stars if you can. And essentially God's saying it's impossible. Everything about this is impossible. Everything about what I'm going to do is impossible, but I'm going to do it. And so you're going to have to trust me. And really, this is where, for the first time, the idea of believing unto justification surfaces in the scriptures. That great verse, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. Now, we could preach 10 sermons on Genesis 15, 6. It is the most important verse in the mind of the Apostle Paul about how men and women are accepted by God, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Abram is believing that God is going to send a redeemer. He's believing that that redeemer is going to bring up a spiritual offspring to Abraham that will be more than the stars in the sky in number. Abram is walking by faith again. He is going forward. He is essentially saying, Lord, you will do as you have said. Because at the end of the day, faith is not anything you're doing. It's saying, Lord, do what you have promised. There's actually in the Hebrew an intimation that there's almost a playoff words with the word he believed. And and it almost echoes the word amen. Abram is raising his amen. He's saying, let it be done. Lord, you will do as you have promised. So much of the Christian life is us pressing through the challenges and the trials, the quest for safety and satisfaction, and coming back to the promises of God, coming back to the word of God, coming back to Jesus in whom those promises are fulfilled. You know, um, there are always, the, the whole of the Old Testament's about Jesus. The whole of the Bible's organically related to Jesus. It's all, Jesus says that in Luke 24, He says that um, everything in the law and the Psalms and the prophets spoke of him. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the Redeemer. This is pointing to the Redeemer. Clearly, the seed promise is pointing to the coming Christ. But what's remarkable, and and this hit me many years ago, that really when God says to Abram in in verse 1, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield your exceeding great reward, what he is saying ultimately is that in Christ, Abram would have all the protection and all the provision, all the safety and all the satisfaction spiritually, that Jesus is the shield and the reward of his people. That what Jesus does at the cross is he ensures for us spiritual safety. How do I know that I'm going to make it to heaven? Because, by the way, if you're a true believer, that is a deep concern. How do I know? that when I die, God is not going to send me to hell forever? How do I know that I'm going to be able to stand on Judgment Day? How do I know that I'm going to have an exceeding great inheritance when I've left behind this world and the pursuits of this world to follow Christ? How do I know? And ultimately, God says, look at the cross. Look at my son. I have given my son for you. He will protect you spiritually. No one will snatch you out of his hand because he paid the price for the sins of his people. His soul became an offering for sin. He took the sin of his people upon himself so that, and I love how the Apostle Paul says this, if, if God is for us in Christ, who can be against us? Famine, nakedness, sword, peril, death, life, things created, things in this world, things out of this world, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? God will protect his people in Jesus. Jesus said, and I love um, 
John chapter 6, because Jesus really is giving all these sweet promises that are built on um, his saving work, his broken body, his shed blood. And he says, he says, the one who believes on me will never perish, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's ultimately saying, you will be safe. And then, and then he ultimately says that I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the reward of God's people is being with Jesus. It's not even the eternal inheritance of all things. It's being with Christ. I love the way one writer puts this. He says, Abraham received the promise that God would be his exceeding great reward. In his teaching, Jesus has, as it were, brought the promise to Abraham up to date. So everything you read in the Gospels is Jesus bringing the same promise he gave to Abraham up to date for you to believe. He demands that men cut themselves off from worldly sources and worldly types of gain. He looks upon the gaining of satisfying compensation in terms of Abraham's experience and of God's promise. And here it is. Jesus is the one who will give reward, and he himself will be that reward promised to the redeemed. God is essentially saying to Abram, I am going to give you the redeemer. I'm going to give you myself. And, and you know, we're all running after safety and satisfaction in a world that is so insecure and so empty and so rebellious and so um, just void of anything that can actually protect or satisfy. We're all running after that. And, and we're forgetting that in the infinite God, there's an absolute guarantee of everlasting safety and everlasting satisfaction. You know, if we labored as much after the knowledge of that by faith as we do after how our retirement benefits are going to look, how different our, our lives would look. And we say we know that. We say we know that. We've got to bring all of our doubts, all of our fears. We've got to be able to healthily assess where we're at. And we've got to go to the Lord, and we've got to bring ourselves to his word. We've got to bring ourselves to his promises, and we've got to be strengthened in faith. You know, I'm going to read to us just as we close Romans 4, the end of Romans 4, because it's really a commentary on this. Um, At the very end of Romans 4, and I think Paul is reflecting on Genesis 15, 1 through 6 specifically. Notice he says um, in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of, of faith. Ultimately, he's saying God, God would provide a perfect imputed righteousness through Jesus to secure that inheritance, to secure the promise. And then notice verse 16, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. That's us if we're believers. Now notice he is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope. Here it is, verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope. That's amazing. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken 
in faith. That's the whole point of this sermon. It's the whole point of Genesis 15. Do not grow weak in faith. Do not grow weak in faith. He did not weaken in faith. Notice, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God. So, the thing we've got to do going out of this place this morning is we've got to reconcile the fact that oftentimes we do grow weary. Our lives don't reflect that we're walking by faith. We oftentimes are taking things into our own hands. We're trying to figure out natural solutions for safety and satisfaction. And God comes and he says, I, in Jesus Christ, am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. And the goal is to grapple with that and to lay hold of that and to be strengthened by that and to be strengthened by all the promises of God. And when we do, you know what happens? We march forward. We go forward in that pilgrimage. We persevere through faith. We give glory to God. We hope against hope. By the way, this is the most practical thing you could ever hear. Churches are always trying to preach practical things. This is the most practical thing you could ever hear. That because of what God has done in Jesus, we can hope against hope. And we can take all of our anxiety and doubts and worry to him and bring ourselves to his word to be strengthened. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you strengthen us, for we are often weak and weary. You are the refuge of our weary souls. We rest on your promises. We rest on the fact that the whole of the Christian life is by grace. We rest that it is by faith in your Son that you give us a perfect, righteous standing before you because of the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would strengthen each man and woman and boy and girl in this place, that you would strengthen us, that we might be a people that hope against hope, that we might learn to think supernaturally about our need for safety and satisfaction. Our God, please do this for us as you did it for Abram so long ago. We thank you that you have heard us. We thank you that you continue to hear us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.